They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives such one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. This must have been a really difficult time for Yeshua, or you might call him Jesus. On one hand, he is dreading the crucifixion, as the events in Gethsemane on the night of his arrest make clear. This wasn't no big deal. He knew he was going to suffer more than any person had, you know... In history, as evil was gearing up to pour out every last bit of its power, cruelty, and contempt on him. But then it would be over for him on the human existence side of things. But he also knew that his young disciples needed to be prepared for the aftermath of what was about to happen, and there wasn't much time left. Passover's coming closer and closer, and they're still talking about rank and ambition. And the desire for rank, recognition, audience, fame, and wealth, and all that, it, it doesn't die easily. We hope for it when we shouldn't, and even when it's entirely inappropriate. One of the things Sabbath-keeping first strikes at the heart at is our desire to produce and achieve. It strikes at our ambition, which is something that none of us can afford within the body of Messiah. They still don't understand this. And next week's lesson will have to be even harsher because we're going to have to add divisiveness and exclusivity into their ambitious dreams. They're still seeing the kingdom and association with Yeshua as a path to self-aggrandizement. They want to be somebody, and in fact, they think they are somebody. And you can't have somebodies without also having nobodies. So today we're going to talk about our least favorite subject behind, you know, suffering for the sake of the gospel. And we're going to talk about the importance of embracing being a bunch of nobodies, because that's the life we're called to live. Hi, I'm Tyler Dawn Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com. 
as well as my six books available on Amazon. Excuse me, still congested. I'm recording all, I of course decided to record like four broadcasts <laughs> in a week where I'm congested. Um, uh, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterandcontext.podbean.com. And transcripts can be had for most broadcasts, including this one, at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that teaches them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. Um, all And that's called Context for Kids, by the way. <laughs> all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want, a list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. All right, so starting in, um, we're in uh, Mark chapter nine, and this is our messianic reality check, take two. And we're going to start in verse 30 this week. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. So remember, we're leaving Caesarea Philippi on the slopes of Mount Hermon, which is about 25 miles north of Bethsaida on the north coast of the Sea of Galilee. Yeshua took them there in order to reveal himself as the one who would undo the reign of gross wickedness in the world because this was the gates of hell that you see referred to in the Bible. This was the place that first century Jews believed that the fallen angels came to earth and made an oath to take human wives in rebellion to God. And uh, from there, they introduced wicked practices on the earth. And I'm not saying this is exactly what happened. Um, the events we see fictionalized in First Enoch, but uh, I am saying that this was the common interpretation of Genesis 6 and the story of the sons of God who married human women and subsequently gave birth to the Nephilim. <coughs> Excuse me. Although First Enoch can't be considered scripture because the eight documents that make it up, you know, wildly contradict each other, and the contents are obviously anti-Persian, anti-Hellenistic polemic, but it does believe, it does reflect, excuse me, the beliefs of what happened. Where the truth ends and where fiction begins, you know, I suppose will always be debated. But there is fiction there, so. But, you know, Mount Hermon was considered to be the place, the gates of hell. Um, if Yeshua was going to make a stand anywhere to declare his intentions to destroy wickedness and the stranglehold of Satan on humanity, there was just no better place. It was another one of what we've been seeing for a long time now. It's a prophetic action, just like the cleansing of the temple will be, and the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, and the two-stage healing of the blind man, etc., etc. All these self-manifesting prophetic activities where Yeshua shows himself to be doing what only Yahweh can do in the Word. 
And so they headed south, all right, and entered back into the Galilee. And he's wanting absolute privacy with his disciples because he has a lot to teach them. Things have changed drastically since the last time they were in Galilee. Really, in some ways, everything has changed for the disciples. All their hopes and their dreams have been just like, well, but they're dying hard, as we'll see. You know, certainly he's no longer hinting that he will die. You know, he's outright telling them that this is what's going to happen. So it's like more now than people with a narrator can understand. Because we understand from the beginning because we have a narrator, but they didn't. So they didn't, you know, catch all these hints. The Galilean ministry that the people have all enjoyed is officially over. The journey to Jerusalem has begun in earnest. And pretty much everything that happens from now on happens for the sake of the final training push for the twelve. Verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. This is all very solid language spoken as facts. You know, there's no wiggle room here. And this is important. This is actually called teaching. So the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Um, so this is prophetic language, yes, but spoken not as predictions, but more like if we would say, we're leaving for vacation in the morning, and we'll drive to Disneyland, and when we get there, we'll stay for a week. Now, you see the difference between when the prophet spoke of future events in this, you know, um, or when they spoke of... Um, Sometimes they spoke of potential future events, but usually, you know, speaking of things, future events that nobody could understand. And, you know, <laughs> but this is a set in stone plan. Okay. This isn't a prediction. This isn't, this is, you know, this is going to happen. All these, um, all these passion predictions are telling them set in stone plans. You know, it leaves no room for if then sorts of hopes. I, uh, you know, which we saw a lot of in Isaiah. Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 is, if you don't, then I will, from Yahweh, through Isaiah, and a lot of the prophets, okay? So, I want to talk about the phrase, delivered into the hands of men. I told you last week about the theme I noticed about hands in scripture and how you can tell the good guys from the bad guys in the Gospels by what they do with their hands. To review, Yeshua's hands are always used to benefit others in some way. His enemies use their hands for violence, treachery, and to exclude, for example, you know, the nitpicking over the hand washing debate. Hopefully by the time this airs, I will have written it up, written up a paper on it. But being delivered over into the hands of men is an idiom for execution and judgment. It refers to the use of authority over men in order to destroy them. 
um, sometimes because of divine, divine judgment, but other times due to oppression and betrayal. Let's look at some verses that talk about this from the Septuagint. <clears throat> so this is going to be Isaiah 19, verses 3 and 4. And I will... Actually, it's going to be just verse 4. <laughs> and I will deliver Egypt into the hands of men, of cruel lords, and cruel kings shall rule over them. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. And this is actually from a really old um, Septuagint, but I, I could I could cut and paste it from Logos. <laughs> so I was being lazy. So you get the King James language. So I will deliver Egypt into the hands of men of cruel lords, and cruel kings shall rule over them. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Um... First Chronicles uh, 21, 13, and David said to Gad, they are very hard for me, even all the three. Let me now fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are very abundant, and let me not fall by any means into the hands of men. Of course, this was the judgment after the census. And um, Sirach 2, 16, 18, of course, this isn't scripture. This is, um, this is extra biblical writings. They fear... They that fear the Lord will prepare their hearts and humble their souls in his sight, saying, We will fall into the hands of the Lord and not into the hands of men. For as his majesty is, so is his mercy. And the uh, lemma, the root word for handed over, is paradidomi, which we see in Mark uh, 1, chapter 14, describing the arrest of John the Baptist and with the introduction of Judas and describing his betrayal. So we have this concept of what people do with their authority, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to be handed over to them. With men, it's inevitably bad because men are described as being without mercy. But falling into the hands of Yahweh is seen as sometimes very harsh, but far better because his mercy generally overcomes his sense of judgment, justice. Meaning this, we get more than we deserve from men and far less than we deserve as far as punishment goes from God. He's inherently trustworthy because of his mercy. Let's look at the Septuagint version of Isaiah 53, 6 and 12, the Suffering Servant Song, translated into the Greek two to three hundred years before the cross to see the language of being handed over to death by an insider. Um, here we go. All we as sheep have gone astray. Everyone has gone astray in his way. And the Lord gave him up for our sins. And that's from Brenton again. And uh, verse 12. For this reason he will inherit many and divide the plunder of the strong. Instead of whom his soul was handed over into death. And he was reckoned among the lawless, and he himself bore the sins of many. And because of their sins, he was handed over. We also see this language in Mark 14, 41, speaking of his imminent betrayal by Judas and arrest at the hands of the chief priests. And in 15, 1, where he speaks of the chief priests handing him over to Pilate. And again in 15, 15, with Pilate handing him over to the soldiers for crucifixion. 
So this language is very deliberate and communicating more than the surface reading would suggest. This isn't just an arrest. This is a series of acts of utter abandonment of the Messiah by the leadership of the Jewish people and the Gentiles. And even if we don't like it much, God. Isaiah 53, 6 makes it clear that Yahweh himself is responsible for handing the servant up for our sins. This was the plan. And why was God abandoning his son? Well, because as we saw in the series I did on Isaiah and the Messiah, the servant must be completely identified with Israel in every way, shape and form, except in the area of sin. To be handed over is to be delivered into judgment. And by area sin, I mean he didn't sin, okay? To be handed over is to be delivered into judgment. Yahweh handed over the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah into the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, respectively. Throughout the book of Judges, Yahweh handed over his wayward people into the hands of oppressor after oppressor, hoping to make them understand that they had no salvation except by his hand. And now, their perfect representative, the suffering servant slash Messiah, must also be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles to bear his people's judgment and the wrath of the enemy against him. Of course, because the Messiah is sinless, the outcome is different and it uh, it destroys sin and death. Now, unlike the previous passion prediction, there is no mention of fulfillment of scripture, no mention of suffering and rejection. I mean, with, with the Paradidomi reference, the focus this time is on personal abandonment and betrayal instead of physical pain. Now, one last thing about our verse, he speaks of rising from the dead after all this happens, which of course is the message of vindication after personal betrayal. And like last week, the worded, the word is, uh, anistemi. And this inex, and as inexplicable as this is to us, they still have no understanding of what he's saying, which they're about to make abundantly clear. Let's look at verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So let's go back and take a look at what they didn't understand because it's been so long since we've read that verse. Hmm. Uh, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. This is what they couldn't understand. And it isn't too hard to figure out why they were afraid to ask for more details. The implication this time is far more terrifying. If he's going to be delivered over, then they have to wonder by whom? Family member? They weren't really on board, but they certainly didn't want any more potential for shame, so probably not. A close associate? Someone like Lazarus, maybe? Or one of the other followers? I mean, there were at least, like, 70 or 120 others, depending on, you know, where you go. 
The last possibility was unthinkable. One of them, one of the twelve. Who on earth would want to ask, fearing it would be their name attached to the accusation? Verse 33, And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked him, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? So they've made it from Caesarea Philippi into south into Galilee, and now they're in Capernaum on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So they're at their home base again. Whether this is a house Yeshua is renting or Peter's mother-in-law's house, you know, we don't know. And they will remain in this house through the end of the chapter. This ends up being an extended time of instruction. And starting with chapter 10, um, they're going to be in Judea to the south on their way to Jerusalem. But anyway, that's actually a heck of a long trip on foot, okay, so from from Hermon to, to Capernaum. And evidently, at some point, the twelve had huddled up and were arguing about something. What on earth could it be? And you notice the on-the-way reference? We have two of them this week. Verse 34. <clears throat> but they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So, um, why the silence? Well, because they were rightly ashamed about the fact that they were bickering about which one of them was the greatest. But what was worse than that? Oh, is far worse. Why would they be talking about this if they knew their master was about to die? Oh, maybe it was because he was going to die, and they were wondering who among them would take his place. Oh, and especially Peter and James and John, because they had just seen Moses, who had been replaced by Joshua. And Joshua went on to conquer the Canaanites. And they had just seen Elijah, who was replaced by Elisha. Elisha, of course, was who started the revolt that killed Jezebel and Ahab and and destroyed the entire house of Omri, you know, resurrecting their hopes of violent conquest. Oh yeah, it all makes sense now. One of them has to be the chosen one. But which one? And here all the honor-shame dynamics kick in and they're jockeying for position. And, and this is absolutely every bit as horrible as it sounds. But this is how we are. This is how, and this is how the ancient honor shame system worked. And I've said it probably hundreds of times that I would never want to live like this. Goodness sakes, our way is bad enough without this sort of stuff going on. Verse 35. And he called down, or he, he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Oh, boy, that uh, that threw a little kink in their plans. Oh, we were almost at the ah, we're almost at the end here, so I'm going to have to improvise <laughs> so we can divide it at a reasonable place. But you know, I never saw that before, you know, because you've got this these expectations with with Moses and Elijah, you've got these stories of violence and conquest and their 
their um, replacements, you know, were responsible for a lot of, of violence and conquest. And so when we put the Torah and the prophets above Yeshua, it's very easy to justify whatever we want to do and our own violent desires for revenge and um, all that kind of stuff. But we've got to be careful. What did the voice from heaven say at the top of Mount Hermon? This is my son. Listen to him. And Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me to him. You will listen. So Yeshua trumps all. Be right back. Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to this week's Character in Context, where we are talking about the second passion prediction, the messianic reality check, and the disciples have shamefully, shamefully, they know he's, you know, he's predicting his death. They were, you know, debating on the way who was going to replace him. It's, ah, oh, it's about to get worse for them. Uh, starting in verse 35 of chapter 9. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first. So here, if you guys want what you think what you want here, he must be last of all and servant of all. If the Bible had been written for us and not just to us, I imagine there'd be a, you know, a facepalm reference. Now, one of the main sermon themes that we see throughout all the Gospels is the concept of, of honor-shame dynamics being turned upside down. He who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Take the low seat at the table, lest you be asked to move down when someone greater comes in the room. Better be moved from low to high than to be humiliated. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount were crystal clear to that audience in telling people not to go seeking honor in aggressive and violent ways, you know, the, the ways of the world, but to be meek and peaceable and not sexually aggressive and vengeful and unforgiving and all those things that exposed a man and his family to shame and danger. Being meek and turning the other cheek in those days was far more dangerous than we can even imagine. But over and over again, Yeshua tells the people that the kingdom is different. Um, you know, as prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 11, 6, and a little child shall lead them. The kingdom doesn't work the way our world works, where powerful men rise up and do violence and liars prosper and the vulnerable are trampled underfoot. That's the opposite of how God's kingdom works. But the disciples and we long for that kind of power and glory. We want to have the upper hand. <laughs> uh, but 
The kingdom isn't about having the upper hand in the physical world, but only in the spiritual world. Um, a crucified king is the way of the kingdom of God, not this world. Makes no sense at all in this world. Makes no sense for us to be people of peace and love and gentleness in the midst of the exact opposite. But that's how Yeshua teaches us to live. Now, Constantine wrecked this for us, and we have never recovered. Uh, check out the writings of the church fathers before and after Constantine. The biggest change he made was adding violence to the arsenal of the church, who before his reign had to rely on God, prayer, and personal witness. But hey, you know, violence is easy, and it makes us feel safe and powerful. So, anyway, he sits down and calls them over. He tells them to ditch all their desire for greatness and rank and ambition and to understand that they need to be in last place, not first place. They need to be servants, not masters. And this was obviously too much for Judas, I imagine, because this meant that he would be poor and not rich. This meant they wouldn't get the upper hand over Rome the way they wanted it or according to their timetable. This reads bad enough to us almost 2,000 years after the cross, but to them, this was revolting and against the natural order. Seriously, if he had endorsed gay marriage, it wouldn't have been more shocking, all right? We're used to, and he didn't, okay, so don't anybody, yeah, okay. Um, we're used to this sort of language, and so we largely read over it as metaphorical. We have to stop doing that. He was deadly serious. No more time for metaphors when they're alone. It couldn't hardly get more objectionable. Uh, verse 36 and 37, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Um, okay, I was wrong. It just got more objectionable. In the Roman Empire, a servant had higher standing than a child. Right? And the only people who would receive a.k.a. serve a child would be, wait for it, slaves and women. Seriously. And this was a patriarchal society, so let's get real here. Any one of them would rather be a male slave than a free woman. I'm not kidding. And when we cover the first century divorce laws and how the disciples felt about them in two weeks... You can just chuck any ideas out the window that they respect women as much as Yeshua does. Of course, Mark doesn't mention their ugly response to the idea of marriage being forever, but Matthew sure does in chapter 19, and, and I taught that a couple of years back. Yeshua is telling them to act the part of women in society. All right, this goes beyond hospitality. There was no hospitality to children. You extended hospitality to adults, and if a child was attached to them, then so be it. 
No one catered to children. No chalky milk and chicky nuggies. Children were less than an afterthought, you know, somewhat because they died so often, but more because they just had zero legal status. I mean, 30% would die before they reached a year old, okay? And 72% would be dead by the age of 16. They just really weren't worth investing in, and you know, until they were adults. And so no one paid them any attention. Even fathers were generally not there um, with their children until the males got to be working age, at which time they were immediately ushered into the adult world. Girls would um, would go and join somebody else's family. Until that time came, the mothers cared for and were the primary educators. But Yeshua is telling them to have care and compassion for others that women have, to act as less than children and receive them like a household slave would. Yeshua's teachings were revolutionary to the point of being crazy in their context. I'm not going to go into it this week, but we will see the phrase in my name pop up again next week too in a related event. Suffice it to say that there is no one that we can turn away as being beneath us if we are really going to go out in his authority as representatives of the character and image of Yahweh. He is telling them to crucify their pride in everything that society tells them about how to be a proper Greco-Roman era Jewish man. Kingdom honor is not to be won in the way of the nations of the world. And I want to talk about the arguing of the disciples here. This is their third argument in this gospel, but it won't be their last. And their arguments are always a sign of being at odds with the ways of the kingdom. Okay, first they argued about the loaves on the boat ride from the region of uh, Genesaret to Bethsaida. Yeshua had literally just made a ton of bread for 4,000 people and they only had one loaf in the boat and were bickering over blame, thinking it's a problem that they only have one loaf for 13 people after Yeshua turned five loaves into enough to satisfy an army. Reality check, okay. Two, when they were arguing with the scribes over their failure to cast the demon out of the boy at Caesarea Philippi, we don't know what the argument was about, but maybe it came down to, you know, so if it's so easy, then you scribes do it. Um, three, the argument among one another as to who is the greatest. Four, next week we will see that they argued with an unaffiliated exorcist who actually had the audacity to drive demons out of people in Yeshua's name, despite not being one of them. Oh, the horror. Five. The incident with the alabaster jar when the group of them argued with the woman's extravagance in anointing Yeshua with expensive nard. Six, at the Last Supper when Peter boasts about his faithfulness in the other Gospels, you know, we have the incident of James and John getting into the argument with the others because their mommy tried to get them a favorable pos position with the others. I'm betting Peter left that. All right. Arguing in the kingdom is a huge problem. Last night I was uh, reading from Dallas Willard's last book published posthumously called Living in Christ's Presence. 
and has a lot to say about how we quench the spirit by constantly being at odds with one another and not seeing ourselves as true extensions of Yeshua, you know, equal members of the same body. Because, frankly, we don't want to be equal. And that is why we have so many people posturing and striving for a position on social media. The reason it's so bad uh, there is because, you know, to be a big gun in a church setting, you either have to have money or you have to do a lot of stuff. On the Internet, people don't need money or works. They just need to talk and talk and talk. So you get these internet celebrities. When I lived in a tiny town, we called them big fishes in a small pond because if they went to a big pond, they'd look small. But there's this striving for position that goes on to be looked up to and respected, to be popular, to get more likes. And so people do what brings those things. Stirring up outrage is an effective way to do just that. Creating division makes people look righteous and discerning to people who don't, who can't see how they actually live their life. People play at teaching and preaching, but they don't, you know, people don't know them from Adam. We don't know if they have even read an entire chapter of the Bible, much less the Bible, the entire Bible. But if they strike an effective chord, they become movers and shakers and sometimes very destructive forces within the body, making bad behavior look like virtuous behavior, you know, not behaving on the net according to the Sermon of the Mount, okay? And then you have people who have no audience whatsoever, and I mean nobody. And so they go on to social media walls of others and they start arguments, which tells you why they have no audience on their own wall. I see it all the time because some of my closest friends draw a big crowd and they get people who only show up to try and gather their own audience by shaming other people and, in so doing, you know, trying to look like experts or superior. You know, just last week I was on the wall of someone who is not a real-life friend, but a college professor from Canada. She teaches Old Testament studies. But anyway, I'm on her wall and she's terrific, but... She posted something incredibly controversial the other day, and she was 100% correct, okay? And a guy comes on and calls her names and challenges her if she has ever read her Bible. Now, <laughs> she has her PhD in the Old Testament, so yeah, as she jokingly said to me later, she's read the Bible once or twice. And this guy, I went to his wall, and no one's interacting with him because he acts like this. But he's getting his master's degree in biblical studies. So this is a believer who is exalting himself over a college professor who was really incredibly gracious about the whole thing. All right. Now, not disagreeing with her and reasoning with her. No, he's posturing and insulting and demeaning her in her own cyber living room. This is the same sort of thing the disciples are doing here, arguing about who's the greatest jockeying for position, trying to honor and shame their way to the top spot, just like they've seen it done since they first entered the world of grown men with their rel male relatives in the town square. And I see it on YouTube, 
and all over the internet and wherever people gather. People vying for this position of top dog, even though Yeshua and later Paul both outright forbid it. Look, we're one body. This is a group effort. You know, I'm a teacher, but that doesn't mean that I rank higher in the kingdom than the person who makes sandwiches and takes them to the homeless. As, as a matter of fact, I personally think I rank lower because of that, or should. All right. But see, there I go. You know, I can't help but rank people too. Uh, and we've been trained to do it. In the body of Messiah, greatness is determined by service, real service, not service for show and not quote unquote servant leadership which has just become a catchphrase which church leadership sometimes uses to mean you are called to serve my vision or as a mock humility kind of thing. But Yeshua says this is not the way. If we all would accept ourselves as extensions of a pre-existing, holy, and worldwide community and see how very small we really are, individually, but, you know, huge as a group, then we could all just settle down. Listen to the voice of the Spirit, grow in fruit, do our individual kingdom jobs. You know, we could change the world. God could change the world through us. But like the disciples before the resurrection, we see the body as many kingdoms and label ourselves and judge one another according to their labels. Okay? Next week, we will see Yeshua rebuke them for just that. But back to Dallas Willard. He was talking about grieving the Holy Spirit by refusing to love and, beyond that, acting unloving toward our brothers and sisters in Messiah and toward the unsaved. And it's so obvious, but at the same time, it's so deep. All right? For me, him saying that, you know, it took me to all the passages where the disciples are being unloving toward one another or to strangers or to children, like when they tried to shoo them off. And we're going to see that again in chapter 10. Um, when Yeshua gets unhappy with, with, with them, um, then the spirit is, uh, undoubtedly grieved. Okay? Anytime Yeshua is unhappy, the Spirit's grieved, alright? The Spirit isn't going to be happy with behavior that draws a rebuke from Yeshua. That's the way I wanted to put that. So I think we have to look at our lives and look at those arguments with the disciples and that the, the kinds of arguments they had and say, okay, how am I behaving like this and how am I grieving the Spirit? How am I shutting the vo Spirit's voice out of my life? And I'm not talking about salvation, but cutting off the source of our renewal and regeneration because we all remember times when we were acting like terrorists and we just stopped growing spiritually. Like with the bickering about the loaves. Okay, goodness, who cares whose fault it was? It's better to work together toward a solution. Blaming one another didn't work out well for Adam and Eve either. God didn't buy it, not one bit. Uh, so it won't work now, either. And for that matter, how often do we argue because we don't remember how well God provides for his people? And the arguing with the scribes, what was the point? Why do we have to win every time our enemies try and get something going? 
Is that the way of the kingdom? Really, what would have been wrong with telling them that they are free to find fault just as soon as one of them succeeds instead? We spend way too much time um, fighting with people instead of working together to come up with a truth or a solution to a dilemma. Why does it matter if someone who isn't one of their group is using Yeshua's authority to cast out demons? Does everyone fighting the enemy have to be in lockstep with us? Demons were being cast out of people. God was winning. Yeshua was being honored. The strong man's house was being looted. Who cares who walked off with the big screen TV? Okay, there's plenty more demons for everyone. You know, it's a net win for the kingdom. I remember once, years ago, and this just broke my heart because I really like this guy. But a guy within, from within the Hebrew Roots movement on my social media wall, he just hated Christians and he couldn't let it go. Um, and he still does, but now he has to preach it elsewhere. Um, anyway, he was so incensed about Christians' good works, but he, he wouldn't give them credit for it. All right. He actually told me that until they stopped eating pork and celebrating Christmas and Easter, and this was back before, you know, um, Myself and, and after me, so many other people debunked those old urban legends about Nimrod, uh, Semiramis, and, and Tammuz that, you know, they should do no good works because they're, they're, they're eating pork and they're celebrating the quote unquote wrong holidays. Okay. And I don't keep Christmas and Easter and I don't eat pork. Okay. So just, yeah. But that they had no business building hospitals and feeding the homeless and caring for widows and orphans. Now, before we shake our heads, do we do that too? There are a lot of different ways that this sort of exclusivist belief can be carried out in real life. And that's the reason why, that's one of the reasons why um, we get so very little done as a worldwide body. Uh, the alabaster jar. Oh my goodness, don't anyone, don't ever criticize anyone else's act of genuine worship. I mean... Unless, you know, child sacrifice or something else truly oppressive and heinous is involved, okay? There is no such thing on wasting money, wasting worship on God, all right? It's impossible to worship him too extravagantly. If you think someone's going overboard, just leave them alone. Don't shame people for adoring Yahweh or Yeshua. That I even have to point that out is extremely disturbing. But we go there, don't we? Uh, boasting. How about like Peter yelling that even if everyone else denies Yeshua, he won't. Bragging and virtue signaling and pointing out how much better and more spiritual you are than anyone else is just messed up. Had a gal. She used to come on my wall years ago and anything I would confess to struggling with, pride, anger, unforgiveness, whatever, she would come on and talk about how that wasn't a problem for her <laughs> without fail. You know, one, it made everyone commenting and commiserating, you know, that they too struggled, you know, it made them feel like worthy, like unworthy dogs, okay? And two, it made everyone just despise her. <laughs> 
it creates division, suspicion, hostility, bitterness, and it, it crushes vulnerability. It grieves the spirit when we do these things in order to exalt ourselves through the shaming and critiquing of others. It's not a kingdom thing. It's a worldly thing. It doesn't build. It tears down. So, you know, anyway. That was a big, long ramble, but we need to be there for one another and not try to have hierarchies. Now, when I walk into a room with a bunch of believers, I know zero about them. I don't know how many are sacrificial givers, how many are encouragers, how many are tireless caregivers, how many are scholars, how many love excellently, how many have wisdom. I just don't know. I try and sometimes fail to assume that they are more faithful than I am. A lot of them probably are. Some of them definitely are. I mean, the thought of me walking into the room and being the most faithful person there, that's frightening. Um, you know, if I assume otherwise, I'm going to say or do something stupidly arrogant. You know, so we just, we need to take the low seat at the table before somebody puts us in our place, which, you know, is really where that idiom comes from. You know, we, uh, we decide we belong somewhere and somebody comes along and puts us in our place. And rightly so, because when we, it, the, even the fact that we are saved says that we are not all that in a bag of chips because we needed to be saved. Good grief. I needed to be saved. Oh man, I just looked at the, uh, at the date. It is the 19th of January when I'm recording this. Tomorrow I will have been a believer 22 years and boy, oh boy, if you are impressed with me, you would have be, <laughs> you need to know what I was like before I was saved. It is scary. You know, it is amazing how God can change people and he's still changing me and he still needs to change me and we're working at it together and Ah, he is so good. See you next week.